I'm out on him. I'm in on Zion. You can put Zion at quarterback, and I'd feel more comfortable. Yeah, I would. I would pay to see Zion at quarterback. Run Wildcat. <laughs> run Wildcat with Zion. See what happens. Who's tackling that guy? Nobody. <laughs> They'd run. That's what they would do. What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I am Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and the Advocate. Here today with special guests. He covers the Oklahoma City Thunder for The Athletic. Before that, he was the Thunder beat writer for the Oklahoman and all-around good guy, Eric Horn. That is very flattering, Christian. Thank you very much, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, man. We are... Uh, I'm I'm living in your home state now, Louisiana. Um, I mean, I don't really know when you graduated high school or anything, but I mean, were you were you a Hornets fan growing up? Was that was that a thing? No, no. Um, for for people listening that are familiar with New Orleans, I went to Brother Martin High School, um, and I graduated in 2003. So I think off the top of my head, I think the Hornets were there at that time, but they had probably just gotten there maybe a few years prior it hadn't been very long maybe like three or four years so i think people were excited about it particularly with like the smoothie king center being built and and all that and it was like an exciting time but i was in high school and i was kind of i already had kind of like my allegiances so to speak um i wasn't really a fan of any particular team at that time um i grew up rooting for michael jordan because that those were the games that were on uh, where I was when we were growing up on WGN or nationally. So I was a big Jordan fan. Then he retired, and I guess I kind of like liked the Kobe, Shaq Lakers, and I liked that like those Kings teams. But really, like the Hornets really didn't like resonate with me. But I thought it was cool for for the city to have the Hornets, and I really appreciated um, Chris Paul and you knew something special was going to happen once they got Chris Paul because the team really took off probably in his like second year, second or third year or so after they, you know, got settled down post Katrina. Um, I did not know you were a brother Martin alumni, DJ Augustine's alma mater, right? I used to watch DJ play in PE. I was maybe a senior um, and he was a freshman and, I can't remember if I was a senior or a junior, but he graduated in 06, but he ended up having to graduate from a town in uh, close to Houston. But before he left Brother Martin, he um, won a couple of state championships, and he appeared in three in three years, which is incredible. Um, but I remember watching him in PE, and I refused to play. I would just watch my classmates get their ass kicked, And I used to just watch him and I was like, that dude's jumper is like so wet. And the rotation on his free throws, I remember just being like, I've never seen the ball come out of a guy's hand like that. And I didn't know he was going to be a pro. I I just thought like, this guy's definitely going to play, you know, college. And I kind of like followed his recruiting and stuff like that. He was in the same class as Kevin Durant and those guys in 06. But I just liked watching him play. I, I never wanted to get out there and have him break my ankles. I was just like, no, nah, I'm just going to watch this dude play. And that's really when, like, basketball at Brother Martin got, like, really popular. A lot of people started going to away games and started attending the games a lot because DJ was this guy that everybody was really proud to root for. And um, he really got people excited about basketball um, at Brother Martin. And I think re- earlier this year he came back and they, like, retired his jersey and all the Magic players were there with him. I got it in like an alumni newsletter recently. So uh, he was just so great for the school. And if Katrina wouldn't have happened, I think they would have ended up winning another state championship with him, but he already won two with them. So he did everything he possibly could for, for the school and he, and he loves the city. So it's awesome, man. I don't know how tall he actually is. I mean, I think he's listed at six foot, but I think he's probably five ten, five eleven in real life. Just to yeah. be a guy that size and, and make it in the NBA and have a decade-plus career, like you have to be so freaking good at basketball to make yeah. it that long being that short. Yeah, it's crazy. And, like, that was the one thing. Like I said, like, you knew he had the skills, and you knew he could shoot it. And if you just look at his shooting numbers over his career, like, he's a good shooter, but the size limitations on defense were always going to be a, a, a problem for him. And – 
you know, to be that size and play for as long as he has, it's not just about, you know, how good of a player he is, but it's also about his character too. He's a, he's a great locker room guy. He's a good family man. Um, every team he's been on, he, he's gotten positive reviews in terms of like how he contributes to a locker room. So I think he's really well respected too uh, around the league. And that's why he's been able to last as long as he has. Uh, yeah, man, like him, Chris Paul, and obviously Chris Paul is like a different level of a guard, but Chris Paul's not very tall either. He's he's a guy who's about six feet, but DJ is probably even smaller than he is. DJ is definitely one of those guys that every time I see him, I'm just like, he's still playing. Like, it feels like yeah. he was at Texas like two decades ago. I think it was, I just looked it up. It was 2006 to 2008. He was there for two years. And then, like, last year in the playoffs, he hits a game-winning shot. I think it was against the Raptors. No. I think it was the Raptors yeah, that he, yeah. that he hit a game-winning shot. First round against the Raptors, I think. Absolute killer, man. Um, what, what was it just like getting to be around Chris Paul this year? That's that's one guy I'm, like, kind of jealous that other people have got to cover. I would I would just love to spend some time and, and see how Chris Paul ticks. No, he's, uh, you know, going into it, I had a lot of people that I'd run into on the road or I'd talk to that had been around Chris, whether it was in LA or Houston, and they would tell me all these, they wouldn't necessarily tell me horror stories, but they would kind of like brace like, how's Chris? And they would ask it in a way like they knew that he was kind of abrasive or that he can be manipulative. Uh, and I haven't gotten any of that. I think that Chris has been really good with us. I was expecting a different experience. He, I think he has an acute understanding of the media uh, from a standpoint of he's not going to give you anything that he doesn't want to give you. But at the same time, when you ask him questions, he will make a point to tell you a specific story or instance because he knows that's what you're looking for. He doesn't just give you just kind of like junk quotes if he knows what exactly you're trying to get to in a question. So if you're detailed and if you ask him a question that's on point, he'll give you an example. And I love that about him because it helps your writing so much. I've been really appreciative of him off the court, but then he's, he's been a joy to watch too on the court, you know, covering Russell Westbrook for four years, you kind of get into a mode of as incredible of a player he is. There's, there's also kind of an unpredictability. It's almost a predictable unpredictability in late game situations, uh, in situations where the team is struggling and Westbrook feels like he has to put it, on his shoulders and he's just not the shooter that Chris Paul is. So a lot of times you'd have instances where Westbrook would actually shoot his team, not out of a game, but he would shoot the other team back into the game because he's not as efficient as Chris Paul. Chris Paul is so efficient. He's so good at getting to his spots and hitting that mid range jumper, that elbow jumper that there's a certain appreciation that comes with how efficient he can be at that size and at that age. Um, you know, this guy's going to be 35 when the restart kicks in at the end of July. He and LeBron are really the only two guys in the league operating at that level. So it's been a pleasure to watch a dude that's like my age, like continue to kick everybody's ass <laughs> in the NBA. Like I couldn't do that. I could. And it's it's just been cool to watch because he, he obviously takes the game very seriously and he takes uh, his, his skill levels really still high. If, if you just look at all the, the crunch time numbers from this season, and I think, you know, just the eye test too, I think Chris Paul was unquestionably the best crunch time performer in the NBA so far. What just makes him, you know, so good in, in those situations in particular at the end of games? You know, the, the shooting, obviously. I think he's somewhere around like the high 40s to, to 50% from three in, in clutch time. His free throw shooting is really good. He's he's crafty in a sense that, you know, when you get close to the bonus, he's going to get that rip move on you and get free throws off of it. So that helps your crunch time numbers, too. Typically, towards the end of the quarters, he's going to be looking to do that. And he just I think that some guys just have an understanding of the game and, and the pace of a game. And when it gets down into those last five minutes, you know how to win in the last five minutes of a game. I, I think he's one of the best, you know, to ever do it in that instance. People give him a lot of shit because of like his playoff struggles. Um, and it's warranted because he's had some like real playoff meltdowns, including one against the thunder. And I, I think in 2014 when he was playing for the Clippers, 
but the guy is one of the best point guards we've seen. He's one of the best people I've seen at, at being able to control a game. And I think people that, you know, followed him from early in his career in New Orleans can remember when he had more explosiveness. He doesn't have that explosiveness anymore, but he still is so crafty and so intelligent that it doesn't matter that he doesn't have the explosiveness he used to because all he needs is one solid screen from a guy like Steven Adams and he can get to his spot in the mid range and he's going to be able to hit that shot no matter who the defender is. So I think that when you have that in your back pocket and that knowledge late in games, it's almost like you're playing with a handicap, like or a handicap in your advantage because you know that you have a shot that you can hit at any juncture of, of, of a quarter. You can hit the mid range or you can hit a couple of free throws off of a foul. And there aren't many teams in the league that have a guy who can go get an automatic bucket. I mean, I think that's going to be a big thing for them going into Orlando too. I think what you're describing too is a really prevalent thing. There's some thunder going on. Is really, if you look at the four games against the Pelicans this year that the Thunder won, they swept them. I think that's what you saw in a lot of those games where the Pelicans were competitive, but then you got down toward the end, especially early in the season, and Chris Paul mainly just he just ran the offense to death, and they just could not stop it. He he outthought them at every juncture, and uh, it. I'm curious. So that offense completely changed. The Thunder offense completely changed, and I'm and I'm curious how was that transition like going from Russell Westbrook, Paul George. Now all of a sudden, it's just it's pure point guard, and the same head coach. <laughs> how did how did yeah. that work? It, I mean, the biggest shift is you've gone from, you know, top three or four teams in the league in transition points to bottom of the league. That's what happens when you get Chris Paul. Your pace completely changes. And you can look at the same thing for the Rockets, too. Um, you know, fewer possessions per game with Chris Paul as opposed to Russell Westbrook. But what you're doing in those possessions is more efficient. You're getting better shots because the ball is in the hands of a guy more often who's going to be a better shooter in the mid-range, a better three-point shooter, a better he's a better shooter at every level than Russell Westbrook. And it's not to say that he's a better player necessarily, but what he does for your offense is he gets more out of less. And I think that that's something that the Thunder's been missing for you know basically since Kevin Durant left because Kevin Durant was a high usage guy that was going to get you as much as possible out of the shots he took because he could hit it from every level. When you have Russell Westbrook, you're going to get a guy who's explosive. He's going to be able to score and get you a lot of opportunities because of how fast he is and how he can break down an offense in the, uh, the transition game and also in the half court just by himself. But you're just not going to be as efficient across the board. And then you add Danilo Gallinari to that, and he's able to space the floor. Um, if you just look at like the, some of the metrics with him on the floor – their offense is just their offense is insane when you're talk when you have Gallinari out there because he just creates so much space for everybody else. Uh, he makes Chris Paul a better finisher. He makes Shea Gilgis Alexander a better finisher. He makes Dennis Schroeder a better finisher because you have to account for him on the backside of a defense uh, because he can shoot the three so well. I think he's shooting close to forty percent on like seven attempts, seven or eight attempts a game. So. When you combine those factors, you just get for a more efficient offense. And, in, I mean, from a Pelican standpoint, they haven't been a great defensive team all year. So when you get into late-game situations against veteran players like that, uh, with where you got a bunch of young guys who are still trying to learn how to be consistent possession by possession on NBA defense, I mean, you're, you're talking about a Hall of Fame guy who's basically running like a professorial class on how to break down defenses late in games. The Pelicans, they're, they're, they're probably going to break down in those instances, despite all the talent that they have. So the Pelicans shouldn't feel bad. Now, Chris Paul has done that to a lot of teams this year. He's done that to better teams than them. So um, it's just part of the growing pains, and I think that the Pelicans are going to be better for it. Yeah, I watched a lot of Gallinari that 2016-17 season with the Nuggets. Um, that was his last season with the Nuggets. I think he's an underrated player. I mean, when he's healthy, that's yeah. always the thing with him as health is he's really freaking good. I mean, he was part of what made that Nuggets offense hum that year. They were, you know, the number one team in offense in the NBA for like the last four months of the season. So the Thunder, they have a lot of good players. 
but you just you just don't know really what you have a lot of times until you just see it together. You don't know how all the pieces are going to fit. Did did the Thunder? I mean, they're forty and twenty four. They're going to challenge for home court advantage, whatever home court advantage is during this yeah. restart. Did did anybody like? Did they expect to be this good? I think if you'd ask the players, they'd probably say they did because they didn't want to lose games. But it, it's it's hard for anybody to be realistic and say that they thought that this team was going to be together this long. You thought you were going to get the thing that was going to hinder this team was guys getting dealt. And you thought it would be at least one of these guys and none of them ended up getting traded for whatever reasons, whether it was the thunder asking for too much or it was, um, you know, guys just having contracts that just weren't able to be moved like Chris Paul's. Uh, And when you have this many you know, talented players together that stay relatively healthy, like good things are probably going to happen. Like there's a, there's a baseline for wins when it comes to a Chris Paul team. I think I looked at this in the preseason when I was uh, getting ready to write about Chris Paul. I think he's been on, even if you count the lockout season, where if you factored in, if they would have played an 82 game season, they would have won 50 games. Chris Paul was basically won 50 or more games for like eight consecutive seasons. He's a guy who, if he, if you have him on your team, you're not going to be bad. There's just, there's just no way you're going to be a bad team. So I think that like Chris Paul certainly thought that they were going to be competitive, and you know a lot of those guys had a lot to play for too. Like Gallinari is going to be a free agent. You know Dennis Schroeder's a guy who's looking for a contract extension or a new contract in 21. Stephen Adams is a guy who's going to be a free agent in 21. So you had a lot of guys with a lot of incentive to be good. And you had them led by one of the best leaders we've seen in NBA history. And a lot of people saying that this team wasn't going to be worth a crap. So I think all those factors together have made this team really good in terms of their chemistry and in terms of, um, you know, wanting to kind of prove that they can be a a viable playoff team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Chris Paul, we we know that, he just has a mammoth amount of money left on his deal. Uh, it's in the 40s each of the next two yeah. years. I mean, do, do you see any scenario where he finishes out that contract with the Thunder? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, look, again, it's going to be really hard to move that deal, particularly where cap space is going to be less – that it has been considering that the league's not going to be bringing in as much revenue over the next year, maybe two years, because um, you're not going to have fans in games. So that salary cap number is going to be lower than anticipated or the luxury tax is going to be lower than anticipated. Those teams that had that cap space might not want to take the risk of bringing in Chris Paul and offloading, you know, some cheaper guys to make the money work. Uh, I've always looked at it as a proposition of, Paul would want to be traded to a team that's going to contend. The team that's always made the most sense to me just doesn't have the assets because they use it in the Pelicans deal. I thought the Lakers probably made the most sense. You know, he's friends with LeBron. They really need, you know, another another ball handler to take some of that pressure off of LeBron as he gets a little older. Um, he's good defensively. He can shoot. Um, LeBron needs shooters around him. And then Chris's family's in LA. So that always made the most sense to me, but the Pelicans deal with the Lakers giving up as many assets that they have, I just don't think that's going to be possible over the next year or so. And that's when you turn your attention to teams like Miami, Milwaukee. Um, you know, the Knicks have been rumored because of the Leon Rose connection with Leon Rose kind of taking over their basketball operations and him being, Chris Paul's former agent at CAA, it's really just difficult to find fits. But I think it is doable. Maybe once they get into the last year of his deal, maybe even this summer, they're going to try again. I think they're going to listen. There's no reason why they shouldn't uh, because they're not a team that's going to be competing for a championship even with Chris Paul. So if they somehow find a suitor or maybe incorporate a third team to where they can make it a three-team deal to where they can make the money work and get what they want while every other team gets what they want, then I think it's something they need to look at again this summer for sure. 
And that that contract, the final year of that contract, I want to say it pays what forty four million something. I think it's forty four. Yeah, <laughs> player option for forty four million. I mean, you'd imagine he'd pick that up, especially considering yeah, think. <laughs> he's going to be, uh, you know, I think thirty six going into that the last year of that deal, and then, um, you know, with the salary cap just being as as uncertain as as it's going to be, you know, that's a lot to take on. But if a team is looking at it from a standpoint of, you know, we 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 we're, we're trying to add that final guy or we're trying to change our culture. I think that's what the Knicks rumors were about. They're just trying to completely change their culture. You know, maybe that's something that the Thunder can get done. And, you know, that they might have to eat some of that on that deal. They're not going to get the return they got for them the first time around where they get two first-round picks. But, frankly, when you get two first-round picks for Chris Paul in the initial deal, uh, you get two first-round picks and Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook, you can probably look at your future deal as, okay, we probably made out better than we should have the first time around. Maybe we can afford to kind of, you know, eat it on this one and, and and take a step back in terms of what we get back, get some expirings, something like that, where maybe we don't get that perfect second rounder we want that's unprotected or something like that uh, because they just did so well the first time getting two first round picks from the Rockets. Nobody could have ever imagined that that would happen. This is going back to the Hornets days a little bit, but did you guys see on the Knuckleheads podcast this week, Chris Paul said that when he took his visit to New Orleans, Byron Scott took about to a TGI Fridays. <laughs> I didn't see that, and shame on Byron Scott. Like Byron Scott <laughs> took him to a TGI Fridays in New Orleans. Like I'm, I'm not like the, I'm not like the. The, the the guru of New Orleans food or anything. Like, I grew up outside of New Orleans in Laplace, so, like, I don't know a ton of... I could, like, name just names of stuff like Commander's Palace or Galatoire's or all kinds of stuff that's, like, famous. I don't know, like, what to recommend to people, but I can tell you this. You could probably take Chris Paul to, like, any gas station along Airline Highway and it'll probably have better food than TGI Fridays. <laughs> like, people are people are just making gumbo and like jambalaya out of gas stations that's better than TGI Friday's like crispy chicken fingers or whatever, man. It's just, um, maybe that's why. Taking a Magnolia discount and he'll be happy. Maybe that's <laughs> why Chris Paul left New Orleans. Maybe he was like, you know what? I'm still salty about the time that Byron Scott took me to TGI Friday's when I live in the seafood capital of the world. Like maybe, maybe that's what I'm a little bit upset about. Like, I don't know. Yeah. In in any city it's like insulting. In New, in New Orleans it's like an affront to It's not right. The food. I tell you this, it's Alvin Gentry wrong. wouldn't have done that. Alvin Gentry would have did it oh, right. Oh no. Alvin knows the spots for sure. Um and to to your point that there are just all these incredible holes in the walls attached to gas stations. One of my favorite places to eat, probably my favorite place to eat here is Bonby Boys. It's attached to a Texaco uh on the way to the Pelicans practice facility. I get this sh- uh, shrimp banh mi sandwich. I mean, there's just a million places like that. Um, you, you're you're never going to go hungry. Uh, but it's as that was pretty insulting. I mean, you could just tell in Chris Paul's voice, he's like, man, I can't believe this dude did this to me. And he didn't even, he didn't really want to work out here. It was kind of a situation where, like, look, we're, we're going to draft you even if you don't work out here, so come visit. And he did it, and then T.J. Fridays. Well, you know what? It was a smart move. Because, you know, Chris Paul set up a lot of good things for them. If they don't get Chris Paul, they don't get AD, they don't get Zion. So it's all, it's all dominoes, man. And that's why you take the best guy, man. Like you don't worry about trying to fit positions and stuff like that. You, you Chris Paul was the best guy, and you know that the the Pelicans or the Hornets at the time did the right thing because he. You know, he's he's kind of like the godfather of basketball for them, uh, or one of those guys that would probably be on their Mount Rushmore, you know, if you count like AD, guys like Baron Davis, Dar- uh, David West, stuff like that. So Easily. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I have I have a Chris Paul anecdote that I that I still think is like one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. And it's it's secondhand, and I want to tell it to you and see if this sounds like the Chris Paul you know. Um, so this was back when he was in college at Wake Forest. I want to say it was 2006. This was back when Wake Forest was, you know, perennially a power. They had Tim Duncan a few years before that, and they had Jeff Teague a few uh, after that. 
uh, and they faced West Virginia in the NCAA tournament that year. Now, you, if you remember that team, it was the one with Kevin Pitznagel. Oh, yeah. And, and Mike Ganzi and John Beeline was the coach. And I want to say Joe Alexander was on that team, too, but he was a bench player. The uh, future lottery pick that was bad. That was a terrible pick. Uh, <laughs> so this story was told to me by uh, – he's now a professor at Longwood University, which is located in Farmville, Virginia, which is a real place. I looked it up. And he covered that game, and he said that he went into the locker room after Wake Forest lost. I want to say it was overtime. They lost to West Virginia, which is a huge underdog. He said he walked in, he saw Chris Paul on the bench, had a towel over his head. He was, like, looking down. And he was like, oh, he must be – he's so distraught. And, uh, and he was. And he went over, and uh, what Chris Paul said was, can't believe I lost to Mike f***ing Danzy. That sounds like Chris Paul. That, yeah. that sounds about right. I mean, he knows, he knows he's good, man. It's like – he knows he's good, and he'll he he understands the game so well, and he knows his capabilities and the other team's capabilities so well that it's like he can say stuff like that because he knows he knows when he's up against a hooper and when he's up against a guy that he should dominate. And it, no no offense to Mike Gansey, he was a good college player, but he wore huge t-shirts under. Yeah, <laughs> but he wasn't Chris Paul. And look, man, it's not, it's not like Chris Paul had a ton of – he didn't have a ton of help on those Wake Forest teams. Like, he was – this wasn't the, uh, you know, the Al-Faruq Aminu Wake Forest teams that had a little bit more talent a few years later. Uh, Chris Paul was the show, man. So, he shouldn't feel that bad, but Chris Paul's a competitor, man. He uh, He takes all that stuff a little personally, I think, when he loses those individual battles like that. So Eric, your first beat, your first year in the Thunder beat was 2016-17, right? 15-16, the Kevin Durant final season. Okay, so you you get thrown onto the beat during you know a year where everybody's speculating that uh, Kevin Durant Kevin Durant might leave. I mean, what was it? What was it just like tackling the beat during you know a pretty stressful year? Well, I was fortunate that I had a lot of really good. Uh, writers and editors around me to kind of guide me. Um, you know, a lot of the people that were around me are, are writing for the athletic. Now, Anthony Slater writes about the warriors. He was kind of instrumental in helping me Darnell Mayberry, who, you know, Christian, you know, he writes for the bulls now for the athletic and he was my editor and he was, a uh, he was a big time help because he had covered the thunder for so long. So for me, like I was nervous a lot because I had never done that before at that level. Um, you know, I covered, I covered everything, but I'd never been one of those guys that was in the middle of a team that was that important. So I was pretty nervous every time I went to the arena. Like I, I used to joke around years down the line and say, I wish that I still felt that nervous. Cause like I was nervous to the point to where I couldn't eat when I got to the arena because I didn't want to be all tired and I didn't want to be bogged down. And I lost a shit ton of weight. Like I was like, like I, like if I wanted to get on a diet, like I wish I kind of felt that way so I could like get on a diet and lose like 20 or 30 pounds, man. Cause I was, I could like, I could go back and look at these videos I was in on the Oklahoma website. And I'm like, man, I was, I was skinny. I must've been just like not eating all the time. Cause I was nervous. So it was a fun year. I wish I could go back and do it again because I wish I could do it with the, the set of eyes and the understanding that I have now um, because I was just trying to keep up back then. But I wish I would have paid attention the way I do now and understood, understood the game better because Kevin Durant's incredible, man. And and Russell Westbrook is too. And I, got, I had the pleasure of covering Russell Westbrook for, I guess, four seasons. But only having Kevin Durant won, he's one of the best basketball players I've ever – I've ever had a chance to watch in person and it was a privilege and I wish I could have done it more because you take for granted how a person of his size can be as fluid and efficient as he is. There will be times where I think in that season, the thunder was kind of just coasting. I think they were to the point in their careers where, <clears throat> excuse me, 
they understood what they needed to do to win games, and that meant sometimes not putting out as much effort as they probably needed to uh, to kind of save themselves for the playoffs or big matchups. And there would be times that the Thunder was playing like crap, and Durant would just say, all right, let's go. And there'd be five minutes left in the fourth quarter, and he'd score 12 straight points. He'd just be like, all right, let's go. Just just start hitting jumpers with people in his face. Uh, Andrew Wiggins would be guarding him as hard as he could, and he'd just hit a jumper over him. And Durant would just be like, no big deal. 24-footer in Andrew Wiggins' face over length. Whatever. It'd be nice to to be able to witness that again because you don't get many chances to watch guys that good. I just read um, that book by Ethan Sherwood Strauss, Victory Machine, and it kind of, you know, it talks about Katie's time with the Warriors, and it, it paints a portrait of a guy who's just kind of unhappy despite a lot of success. You know, you covered KD at a very different time in his life. What was just the general mood that season for him? He was chill. Uh, in retrospect, I think he handled it really well because every city that he went to, he got the same lazy, not lazy, but like the same like questions that editors would require people to ask when a guy like that comes to your town. Um, and he handled it professionally, I thought. Um, you know, this was a guy who I think at many junctures in his career has cared a lot about what people think about him and, and the moves he makes and how he's portrayed. And there were times where he really showed that to us, that he had a deep, deep care for what people thought of him. And I imagine that it's really difficult to go through that when you've spent eight years somewhere, but then you understand that it's time for you to make a new move in your life and to seek something different. And I think that that was the most important part for him was he needed a change of scenery. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you think about how old he was when he made that move, when somebody's 26 or 27 years old, I think a lot of us get that way. We get to a point to where we're like, you know, I've been here for a certain amount of time. I want to go do some stuff before it gets too late. And I think that was kind of what where he was at in his career. He had a lot of individual accomplishments. He lived in a nice enough city, but... He gets to go live on the coast, make a shit ton of money, and play with really highly skilled basketball players. That's not that's not an opportunity that comes along very often. But I thought he handled it really well. And I think that people, even at the time when like the letter came out and people didn't appreciate the way that he left, he didn't have to write a letter at all. He could have just bounced without any kind of letter. He could have worn a shirt that said, that's all, folks, like Anthony Davis did. <laughs> yeah. Christ almighty. But I think in a way, like, Kev, like, kind of opened it up for a lot of guys to do that. And I, LeBron was obviously the guy that started that. But Kev's kind of in that line where he opened it up for guys, you know, to to be okay with making that decision. And I thought he handled it well. And, like, I don't think that he necessarily owes anybody anything here because he gave eight years of his career and he played really hard. Um he came up short. He probably should have been better in some clutch moments, but you could say that about a lot of guys in the NBA. Uh, sometimes it just takes time and maturity and getting with the right mix of players. Now, he had to get with two of the best shooters of all time, one of the best defensive players of all time to win the title. But look, a lot of guys have had to get with some really good guys to win championships too. So he was great. He was great to be around. He's a good dude, man. He really is. I'm so curious to see how this run with the Nets go because look, if you yeah. just look at the guys, the history of guys who've had Achilles injuries, it's not pretty. They're just, you know, across the board, they're just not who they were. But on the other hand, I think that Kevin Durant is so unique that if there's anybody whose game is suited to, you know, still being a really good player after this injury, it's him. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is just like coexisting with Kyrie Irving. Like they might be like buds or whatever. But just in, just from a basketball standpoint, like how that's going to work, because it just seems that Kyrie, other than playing with LeBron, which wore on Kyrie itself, like he's he's kind of like hijacked teams to the point to where it hasn't been productive, um, particularly with the Celtics. So I just wonder how that is going to work when Kevin's coming off of an injury. <clears throat> What if he starts playing really well and he's the alpha? How's Kyrie going to respond? I don't think Kevin's going to have a problem deferring to Kyrie because I think Kevin's kind of got a 
deferential kind of temperament to begin with, uh, even though he's one of the most alpha in terms of skills we've ever seen. But that's an interesting experiment, man. And, and you know, if, even if Kevin loses some athleticism, he's still going to be a knockdown shooter, I would think. So, you know, what version we get of him is going to be really interesting to see, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued to, to see how that works. So here's, here's one thing that the th- I always get struck with when I look at the Thunder, which is they may be the best drafting team in the NBA over the last two decades. And I obviously include the Supersonics in that, which is technically the team that drafted Kevin Durant. But, you know, you go back to guys they have drafted. Uh, Kevin Durant, obviously. Serge Ibaka. Russell Westbrook. Those were three consecutive first-round picks. James Harden in 2009, the next year. Eric Bledsoe. Reggie Jackson, Stephen Adams, uh, and then Terrence Ferguson. Now, did they draft Shea? I don't no. know if they drafted Shea Gillies. They drafted the Clippers. That's they, yeah. they essentially. I mean, if you count like a team drafting a guy and then trading it to you, I mean, you could almost count Demontis Sabonis too, because uh, he was part of the yeah. Abaka package. But anyway, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh no! I mean, I, I, is that? You know, when you look at a team like the Pelicans, who basically, other than Anthony Davis uh, and, uh, you know, Zion, the two number one overall picks, which were pretty much, you know, you, you know who you're going to take. They haven't really, they've had a really difficult draft history. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Thunder, they they were able to create a team that had Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Serge Ibaka, and Kevin Durant on it. Uh, they didn't win, but they made it to the finals. They didn't win, but, they, you know, what is it, you know, obviously you've only been covering them for the last few years, but... What is it like watching a team where it's like you expect to get a player like that in the draft? <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, since I've covered the team, I haven't really expected that. I've uh, because I think they've, you know, as time has gone on, they've getting they've gotten farther back in the first round, which makes it more difficult to hit on those guys. Like hitting on Serge Ibaka and Reggie Jackson is like a miracle. That's that's as much of a miracle as hitting on Russell Westbrook and James Harden in the top five to me because a guy like Serge Ibaka at 21 where they got him uh, in the same draft as getting Russell Westbrook and then Serge Ibaka becoming the player he has where at one point he was like probably the most versatile guy in the league in terms of being able to stretch, protect the rim and guard five positions when you're switching on defense. Like that just doesn't happen very often in the history of the NBA. Serge Ibaka can do, Almost anything you ask him to do on a basketball court, you don't get those kind of guys at 21. So it's a credit to the Thunder's like development, their their talent evaluation, um, and even a guy like Reggie Jackson who like gets a lot of crap because of the way that he left Oklahoma City. He's a NBA point guard. Like he's a he's a he's a solid NBA point guard. He's a guy who's like won them games. So. Being in Oklahoma the entire time that the Thunders existed, I think has been really cool because you've gotten to see this team grow from nothing. I remember when I worked at this paper in Ardmore, and Christian is probably familiar with Ardmore, which is kind of in southern Oklahoma. It was a two-man team working in Ardmore, and we had this small paper, and I was there in 2008 when the Thunder was terrible. I mean, they were like 3-20-something and 20 something at one point, and they fired P.J. Carlismo after like 13 games. And every night we'd be building the paper and we would say, hey, man, the Thunder play tonight. Where do we want to put the Thunder? And we'd be like, oh, just put them on page three or some shit. Like, <laughs> and it, it's crazy to even think that the Thunder could be some page three team now. Like, but within like a year, they went from the back of our sports section to the front page every night because they went from 23 wins to 50. Like, and then maintained it all because – you know, they drafted really well and these guys were developed and they were hungry. So the Thunder are kind of like the prototype for a lot of NBA teams now. You know, you draft, you develop, you go through a year or two of growing pains. I think you're seeing that in Memphis for sure. I think the Pelicans have a real chance to be that with Zion now. And, you know, a lot of these young guys, they probably grew up looking at a team like the Thunder like, yo, like, those are the guys we want to be like. We want to be like Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. Like, years ago, I think Philly, like Embiid and Simmons were talking about, we don't want to be like 
the way that Durant and, and, and Westbrook and Harden got broken up. Like we don't we don't want it to be like that. But to even have like an ounce of the success those guys had in a five or six year span would be a success for any team. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're right that Zion is trying to make the Pelicans and has a pretty good shot of making them, you know, kind of a, a front page story every night and a consistent draw. I've I've lived in and worked in Texas, uh, Oklahoma, Denver, and now here. And I think this is the most football-obsessed region I've ever lived in out of all those places. And maybe it's because I'm coming into this, you know, at a time when the Saints are really good and LSU just won a national championship. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. But I didn't realize coming into Louisiana just how football crazy this place is. Yeah, LSU is basically like another pro team. So just there's just not enough. There's, there typically doesn't exist enough bandwidth with the people who care about sports to to care about three things. It's usually Saints and LSU, and then there's kind of a niche group of people who care about everything else. And I would even say something like, I would even say something like LSU baseball ranks ahead of the Pelicans. You'd be right, yeah. Pre pre Zion, if Zion gets this thing cranking, like people are gonna care um, because people cared about you know, the, the, the Chris Paul Hornets, but you got to be really good. And I think that the Pelicans have a, a good chance to, to be like those teams because not just because Zion is, is a special player, but because he has good young players around him. He's not going to have to be a dude scoring 30 points a game every night because Brandon Ingram's an all-star, you know, Lonzo ball is like a competent defender who is a great team player who shares the ball. Uh, Josh Hart is a solid NBA rotation player who can hit a three. Like you got a bunch of dudes who are pretty good dudes around the same age who are going to be able to take some of that weight off of Zion. So I think that they have an opportunity to kind of be in that, in that kind of grouping. And, and it helps that you got a guy like Zion who's so charismatic, who's so awesome. And frankly, like, with the way that the Saints are going, I don't know how much longer this thing's gonna rock, gonna, gonna last, man. Because y'all can y'all can try and convince me that Taysom Hill's the next Drew Brees, but I've been telling <laughs> people for look, I hope everybody on your podcast hears this. Taysom Hill is not good. All right, I'm gonna just say it, and you can put it you can put it out there. I don't care, man. Teddy Bridgewater was the dude. Uh, there was a reason that Teddy was starting over that guy when Drew Brees went out. Okay, because they don't trust him. He's not a good downfield thrower. He hasn't had to uh, go through progressions for an entire game. Teddy's done all that stuff. and He doesn't turn the ball over. So you're basically starting to H back at quarterback that that you, you believe in. Who's not even that good of a quarterback. I just I think this Saints thing is going to fall off severely <laughs> if they don't get somebody that's better than Taysom Hill. Like. I'm not going to I'm not going to get all excited about Jameis or whatever but like I feel more secure with Jameis coming into a game and having to lead a 2 minute drill than Taysom Hill. That's all I'm saying. Like I'm sorry man, I got on a rant. I'm sorry. I'm going to chill out. You heard it here first. Taysom Hill bad. He's not good. He's just he's just not that good. I'm sorry. Like I would argue Taysom Hill is really good at being Taysom Hill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taysom Hill is not a, is not like a pocket passer. His his gimmick the gimmick stuff is cool and like everybody got excited because he was like the most effective weapon against the Minnesota Vikings. Like play that game 9 times out of 10 and Drew Brees isn't going to play that poorly and Taysom Hill is not going to play that good. It just that was just one that was a one game sample of Taysom Hill being this really effective thing that Minnesota couldn't account for, like, that doesn't play out to 16 games. That's not how this shit works, man. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's I think we've touched a nerve. We didn't even bring up Taysom Hill. You brought it up. Just, you really wanted to talk about this. In I here, okay? I'm, I'm, I grew up watching, like, the Saints are my team, and it just makes me – it just annoys the hell out of me, man. It's like, all right, see – this is what Christian's talking about, the football passion, man. Like, we're not, we weren't even talking about football. This isn't even a football right. podcast, and we start talking about this stuff, man. It's, like, ridiculous. So, anyway. Well, Eric, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to our sports editor and see if we can get you a guest op-ed, um, just so you can tee off on, on Taysom Hill, okay? We'll give you, like, a thousand Look, words. Is that man, enough? I, like, I don't want to bang on the dude too hard. Like, I just want fans to calm down. Like, now, and frankly, I want the Saints to calm down too because I think they're way too excited about Taysom Hill. And it's, 
to me, it's kind of like a smoke screen. Like maybe they're trying to get somebody to like trade for him and they get like picks or something. I, I don't, I don't get it because if they really thought that much of him, they just would have played him last year. Like they, they, they obviously don't think he's that good or they're trying to believe they're trying to make other people believe he's good. Uh, we spent way too much time on this, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, I'm always I'm always down to talk Saints. I have one question that I, that I do want to ask beforehand because it, it concerns one of the people that fascinates me most in the NBA, which is Stephen Adams, yes. who I just learned played a year for the Wellington Saints before going to Pittsburgh, where I first encountered him because I'm a, I'm an all I grew up in Connecticut, I'm a UConn yeah. fan, and uh, they used to those UConn Pittsburgh battles from back in the day were always just you had to they they were crazy. Anyway, the half court shot put three before halftime against the Pelicans, if you recall this. Steven Adamson. And wow! The one-hander from half court. Wow! I was going to say, that's Steven the second Adams. percentage buster that they've given him. Wow! The big man slings it up and slings it in. So obviously Chris Paul knew what he was doing. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it wasn't even a, a shot. It was quite literally a shot put. Yeah, and I, I assume you were there for that. And Christian, I can't remember if you were. I there actually, too. I don't think uh, I was there for that one. So I, I'm just curious. You know, did he talk about that after the game? Because it, it struck me that his sister is like an Olympic shot put. Yeah, and I, I have been wondering since if that played a role in his decision to just literally. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I think there's a clip out there. You could find it that. A few games before that, at a Thunder home game, he tried one and it came up short or he missed pretty poorly. And you could see Chris Paul as they're walking off the court. Chris Paul is showing Steven Adams. He's like, hey, man, you got to just, you got to float that thing. You got to, and he's showing him the motion. So, like, Chris Paul told him what to do. And then, and then, and then Steven Adams comes out the next game and just lets that thing go. And it's perfect. Like, so, once again, Chris Paul, man, that's why he's on my MVP ballot, because <laughs> Steven Adams is hitting, like, three-quarter court shots and shit. It's a, Chris Paul has, has made Steven Adams a better player. It's, it's clear. It's obvious. Like, One of my favorite moments from this Pelican season, this is the last thing before we let you go, was when Zion uh, moved Steven Adams out of the way. Like, Zion got an oh, offensive rebound, man. and then he, he barreled into Steven Adams, and Steven Adams, just a tree of a human being, like, just goes back six feet. Yeah. There have been so many instances this year where I've been like, I've never seen anybody do that on a basketball court from Zion. And you could tell when Zion played the Pelicans for the, not the Pelicans, the Thunder for the first time. And I think he might, he might've had 27 or 28, something like that. He went off. Um, you could tell that Steven Adams was like, Whoa, like, cause usually he's not really, even when a guy's like more athletic than him, you don't really, see him kind of like react to it but I think Steven Adams was even kind of taken aback by like how explosive and big that dude was um you know, a lot of teams were I count me among the skeptics uh the Zion skeptics man like I I thought he would be I thought he would round out into being a really good player I didn't know he would be this good this fast um I love seeing guys from college who you had questions about come into the league and be better because the league is better suited for what they do. And I think that Zion is going to be a guy who is really going to flourish because he can do more than he was being asked to do at Duke. And he's going to get more space to do it in. You know, he's a great passer. He's a really good passer. I did not know he was that good of a passer. Like uh, his second jump, obviously outstanding. Um, you know, once he works on his free throws and stuff, and he and he gets just more repetitions, and he doesn't have to worry about going to class and shit. Like <laughs> he's gonna be good at that. He'll be fine. Um, but more than anything, I think that people just get excited about him, and I think that there are only a handful of guys in the league that can just galvanize a team by like just being out there, and you could tell that that team feeds off of his energy. Um, I think I remember, was it the game against the Spurs? He hit all those threes. That was his first game. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was the Spurs. Well, I was watching that game with some buddies of mine in a bar 
and you know it started off with like a bunch of the obligatory like oh zion's fat jokes or whatever and everybody's like oh this guy's out of shape i was like man he needs to lose some weight because like he was struggling but once he started hitting shots i'm telling you the whole bar was just like every time the spurs missed a shot and he gets the ball everybody was just like shoot it Shoot the <laughs> we were just like, just shoot that hoe. I don't care. Just shoot it. And, like, the bar was exploding. So I can't even – like, and this is in Oklahoma City. So I can't imagine what it's like being an actual fan of that team and being in New Orleans and watching that guy, like, galvanize your team and your and, and your players that way. Like, he he changes the entire confidence of a team when he's on the floor. And there just aren't that many guys that do that. Yeah, that was the most fun night of watching basketball I've ever had was, was that night in the blunder. I mean, I guess maybe the most fun quarter because the first three quarters were not that fun. But it was incredible. Yeah. No, that fourth quarter was awesome. It felt like a playoff game. Like, it was that intense. Yeah. And it was like, if they would have... Now, look, they needed him to hit those shots to even be close at the end. But he's on the pitch count, basically. And then they got to take him out. And you're like, dude, if they would have managed his minutes differently and, like, had him at, like, it, but it all worked the way it was. Like, they would have won the game if he was in at the end. They would have won. Like, he'd have found a way to make a play. But you're just like, man, don't. You're sitting there thinking, like, they're going to pull him. They're going to they're gonna pull him because they said they were going to. But then you're like, just leave him. Shit. Just leave him out there. But that's how exciting that guy is, man. That's how much he, he he impacts winning. Like, and I'm excited to see what kind of shape he's in. You know, every I, I guess everybody's been saying he's in good shape, so we'll we'll see. Yeah, the uh, the Pelicans released some B-roll footage of guys in the workout facility, and uh, he looks pretty good, you guys. So. I'm all for it, man. I'm all. I'm, and look, with that schedule they've got, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to at least make the, uh, you know, the eight nine. Uh, play-in situation, and that's just the league's dream at this point. Okay, so Eric Horn in on the Pelicans, not so much on Taysom Hill? No, (laughs) I'm out on him, I'm in on Zion. You can put Zion at quarterback, and I'd feel more comfortable at at this point, to be honest with you. I'm not joking, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I would I would pay to see Zion at quarterback. Run Wildcat Wildcat with Zion, see what happens. Who's tackling that guy? Nobody. (laughs) Uh, they'd run. That's what they would do. <laughs> All right, Eric. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you hopping on. Um, people can find your work on The Athletic. Uh, where are you on Twitter? Uh, it's Eric with a K and then the letter K and then H-O-R-N-E. That's my Twitter handle. Um, I'm there. I'm talking about Thunder stuff. Maybe I'll throw out some Taysom Hill stuff now. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, check out my work at theathletic.com as well. Free 30-day subscription right now so you can't lose. All right, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.